so in um, 1975 is what it looks like. Yuri Geller, he's a uh, the guy that could bend spoons. He went to um, to Lawrence Livermore Institution. He was actually uh, had been prior to that point just working with the University of California at the Stanford Research Institute with a lot of his um, tests and everything. But things became a little bit more concerning, you know, when they started realizing, you know, the implications of his, of his capabilities and everything to be able to not just manipulate matter, but also manipulate minds and inject thoughts and more or less influence people from a distance and everything, you know, more or less overriding what he, what they consider to be free will and everything. So at that point, they ended up uh, taking him over to um, Lawrence Livermore Institute for more studying. And... So anyways, at um, Lawrence uh, Livermore Institution in um, California, it's kind of like a scientific study institution and everything. Um, they've got uh, similar institutes uh, around the, uh, the nation. Los Alamos is one. That's in New Mexico. And typically, these places are, are there to study um, more or less uh, physics, and in particular, theoretical physics. And uh, in this uh, particular study, they... Um, they brought in some people that actually had Q clearance. Now, if you're not familiar with Q clearance, there's uh, there's secret, there's top secret, and top secret CLI, which is uh, stands for compartmentalized localized information, which basically means the even though you may have a top secret clearance, um, the CL, CLI basically says this is specific to a single organization or a single group uh, within it. So you have to be given project approval in order to access something that's a top secret CLI um, CLI access. So, for instance, Project Art Artichoke, um, it's going to be a top secret CLI uh, project. Project uh, Blue Book, Project uh, MK Ultra. All these different projects are going to be um, top secret CLI projects. Well, in this case, um, they had elevated it to a uh, to something called a Q clearance. <laughs> And what that stands for is, uh, it's just basically, it's a very, very specific, very similar to top secret, um, other than um, it is not to go up the chain. So it's something that could potentially be of interest to Q, um, yours truly in this case, um, but uh, it is it is intended specifically to not be reported up through the chains. So what that means is presidential authority or anything like that. President isn't even supposed to know about these kind of projects and everything that go on with the Q clearance. That's the purpose of the Q clearance is to actually keep this out of um, the the radar of basically elected leaders and anybody that's uh, um, more or less that has not been given directive authority to this project or anything like that. So the reason for that is pretty simple. Um, Secrecy, you know, plain and simple. You know, um, we've realized over a number, a long, um, a very long time, and everything that secrets are absolutely essential. You know, to the progression of uh, society, even secrets from the leader himself. And uh, the reason for that is just, it's, it's, it's a part of actually what what we feel, what I feel, anyways, uh, is what maintains. Um, maintains the mystery in society, and that mystery, you know, is something that uh, that everybody, in my opinion, needs. 
Um, they might, may not necessarily want it, but they certainly, um, in my opinion, do need it. You know, and uh, that mystery can, you know, develop emotion. <laughs> so anyways, this project that uh, ended up going on was uh, just basically studying Yuri Geller from a, the ability to be able to manipulate um, manipulate matter and the mind. And uh, the focus was the uh, study of the unconscious mind. So how suggestions could actually get implanted into the unconscious mind. And furthermore, um, if it was possible to actually manipulate, uh, manipulate subatomic matter. So two of the tests that they ended up having, one was, uh, um, as, it's, as it's stated here, two sets of experiments were to take place. And first, high-quality lasers were fired at a target. And uh, the question was, could, could Yuri uh, Geller interfere with the beams? So the the goal, the focus was to more or less can they actually alter the course of a laser um, in flight. Well, part of this, um, you know, uh, part of the results of that uh, is actually part of the reason for the development of um, what is it, uh, basically fiber optics, you know, the belief was it was a highly secured way of basically transmitting information because light itself, it was believed, um, could not actually be uh, deviated uh, from its uh, position and everything. Well, they've since found out that particularly through the Yuri Geller experiments and everything, that it could indeed actually be not just deviated, but it could potentially be split without uh, detection um, by the source. So that was actually one of the interesting findings of this uh, case and everything. That uh, yes, indeed, it could could not only be split, but also technology could be created to leverage this effect. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's called the Kashmir effect, but I I might be uh, I might be mistaken on that. But uh, basically, it's a capability to dilate, uh, to more or less displace light um, through temporal-based mechanisms, and that's actually what the mind is effectively doing, is uh, effectively uh, creating a kind of like a rift in time to actually cause the deviation, the bending of light at a particular point in, point in space and time. So the second experiment that they ended up having was the... Uh, um, magnetic uh, computer program uh, cards and uh, legal container and seal it. Could uh, could could he affect what was inside? Now the whole thing was could he actually alter the data um, on on magnetic disks? So you know it's actually it's important to understand that you know the magnetic uh, information is actually stored in a binary way. So if you take information and uh, you know just basically uh, commit it to a hard disk, there's a translation that actually occurs, and that translation isn't a direct um, copy of reality, but basically it's a binary translation to commit it to disk. Well, they had a really interesting question that they were trying to ask. Did his mind have the capability to be able to alter um, the information that was stored on that disk? Well, the implications for this, you know, should it prove successful, is that he wasn't just altering um, altering information, but he was altering time itself, and that's actually why this is was uh, became a Q clearance type thing. You know, they knew you know out of the gates and everything what the implications were. You know, because uh, here and here's the premise. You know, if you've got information that's actually stored on disk, and that information at a later point changes, you know. Um, from what it was originally without interference, well, 
you know, what are the explanations for that, you know, mind control, right? You know, but what is his mind specifically doing? Is it flipping bits? You know, I mean, does a one become a zero? Does, you know, and in the higher order of things, is he actually manipulating the information that's directly stored on this? Or, you know, here's the greater question. Is he actually altering the time stream that actually created this information to begin with and later resulted in, in a different set of, set of information actually stored that's actually stored on this disk? So it depends on your perspective, right? You know, um, is he altering this flow of time and causing a deviation in the time stream? You know, or is he just simply flipping bets? I mean, is it really that simple, you know? And does his mind, you know, does he understand programming at an unconscious level? You know, so it's really, it's two chain of thoughts, you know? It's just like both are equally possible, should the results um, turn out. Now, I'll get to the uh, to the results of this in a little bit, but I just want to talk about that. Uh, but that's actually what the, uh, the Q clearance is all about. You know, the Q clearance is about... Um, you know, unlike the top secret, the secret top secret and top secret CLI, um, each one of which the president and any uh, anybody up the hierarchical chain is allowed to know about. Um, unlike those kind of clearances and everything, the Q clearance is specifically created to uh, to not go up through the chain. So basically the person originating the project that's been given back black budget funding and everything um, is specifically the last person that's responsible for reporting this information and does not report it up the chain. You know, and anything that's actually reported up the chain is basically black budget funding. funding. So this has gone on for a very long time historically, since 1947, actually since 1935 to be precise, um, but it, it ramped up with the creation of the CIA back in 1947, and especially through the 1960s and 1970s, particularly when they got into, you know, developing mind control. They wanted to make sure that, uh, that there was, you know, no correlation to like a collective um, collective mind and everything, or that the, that they had a distinction. They were trying to discover basically the origin. They were trying to isolate, you know, the uh, how how the mechanisms worked and everything. And at that point, they were basically doing everything. That's that's the reason for the creation of something called the Q clearance. So pretty interesting, I thought. But anyways, one thing I uh, forgot to mention was the. Um, the overall effects that uh, that um, Yuri Geller actually had while performing these experiments on the uh, scientists. So one of the um, re requirements for the Q clearance is basically there's 24 by 7 um, observation during the course of uh, during the course of experimentation um, for Q clearance uh, type stuff. So whenever there's a Q clearance project, there's 24 by 7 observation. Um, at least that's that's occurred since the 1980s. Um, but the 1970s, it was direct reporting. So basically what that means is, um, in, in this experiment in particular, the results that were happening of... Um, the observation of alteration of physical matter and that kind of stuff were directly observed by the scientists. Um, but uh, when they they were required as a result of the Q clearance in order to report anything 
out of the ordinary that happened while they weren't um, while they weren't actually working. So basically, their their whole life outside of uh, the work environment and everything was under scrutiny as well. Um, and the expectation was that they would self-report, that they would report any kind of problems that they ended up having. Well, more or less because of this and because of uh, similar events and everything throughout the 1980s, um, it was. Somewhere, I think it was like 1984 to be precise, um, that uh, Reagan is uh, initiated a a call. He still didn't. Uh, he wanted to make sure that uh, he was aware of the Q clearances, but he wanted to make sure that um, that there was external observation of the events that actually happened on Q clearance um, projects and everything, and to include at least one, if not two, observers at all times of somebody that was actually in. Uh, undergoing um, work on a Q clearance project. So it doesn't mean that these individuals actually had to be cleared uh, for Q clearance. It just means that they themselves had to watch the target the, uh, of the Q clearance and uh, make sure, that, uh, just basically ob observe any anything that they saw that was happening to this individual that was actually working on a Q clearance project. So the expectation for anybody working on a Q clearance was that there was absolutely no reporting outside the immediate group and everything. Um, but this actually, you know, is part of the reason that the CIA and the NSA both ramped up um, simple uh, observation, uh, observational analysts and everything to watch people that were actually working on Q clearance type stuff. And uh, that's you know something I myself was working on, and I had two people that were observing me while I was over in Charlotte, North Carolina. So. In any case, um, what ended up happening with these guys um, through self-reporting mechanisms and everything was each one experienced some really weird things. Now, here's a list of of the things that they ended up experiencing. So, and just to explain, each night after finishing up their work with Geller, I'm reading an excerpt here of the study. Um, Livermore scientists went home each morning, in keeping with nuclear clearance security protocols, the scientists were required to report. Um, and nuclear clearance security protocols is also a re reference, uh, an indirect reference to the Q clearance. The t scientists were required to report anything unusual that had happened overnight. After the second day of tests. Um, AEC security officer Ron Robertson, who had a cure clearance, called Kit Green at CIA headquarters. He told me there was a serious problem, recalls Green. Several nuclear weapons engineers had reported seeing things they could not rationally explain. These included items flying across the room, lights flashing, a six-inch ball of lightning rolling down the highway. One scientist reported seeing a flying orb remembers Green. One of the scientists claimed to have seen a large raven perched on a prior uh, a piece of furniture inside his home. Privately glean, uh, he thought these are poltergeist events from, from folklore. Um, now, to explain what they were seeing, it's actually you know pretty simple. When the scientific, in particular, somebody that actually has a fundamental basis, a belief system in math and science and everything, um, when you see something that actually breaks down your fundamental belief system at a core level, and uh, in in this case right here, um, they saw an event, um, the deconstruction or manipulation of matter that they couldn't explain. Why did it happen? You know, they had absolutely no previous, um, you know, previous things that they had observed that actually caused this to happen. And uh, it, it also, through their own science, you know, through anything from 
basic physics to you know modern physics and materials physics all the way to uh, to math mathematics and everything there was nothing that really directly explained this well this in itself is actually what's responsible for causing a ripple effect in each one of their minds which has a tendency to deconstruct reality or cause hallucinations because the mind is, is at this point trying to grapple with creating a rational framework to observe reality through you know so from a perception perspective and everything um, your perception is based on the expectation that light's going to move in a predictable way um, that sound is going to move in a predictable way that waves and you know that particles and all this other kind of stuff and everything is is normal this is normal behavior and everything and then all of a sudden you see something that defies all all of this indoctrinated science and everything scientific belief and what happens is the mind naturally will try to find um, find ways to resolve this well typically it does this at an unconscious and a subconscious level um, but in the case of this right here it was an individual observation and because the mind is comprised of a a um, a whole series of neurons that in a sense create a collective organism and a collective perspective on reality the mind itself became confused and didn't understand the individual and as a result this caused conflict and as a result what happened was this created the hallucinations that the, that the scientists saw you know at that point the mind itself of these individuals started experimenting on the individual to understand what this thing this individual thing that observed something that it shouldn't have observed why it observed it so in any case it's uh these experiments that uh, that each each of these minds you know ended up undergoing was uh, more or less you know the projection of uh of a raven you know from imagination or everything into the reality um all the way to um, what was it, the the ball lightning and that kind of stuff. It's basically, it's almost like, you know, your mind is a computer at times, and as a result, it will draw these things into the reality, and that's, you know, into the reality that you're observing from a three-dimensional perspective and everything. That's actually what to, what these scientists were observing, was how their mind functions. So one of the um, the interesting things, the un interesting observations that uh, one of the scientists had was... Uh, it was a um, when the scientists woke up in the middle of the night, and he found that uh, there was a disc incarnate rotating um, arm that uh, was rotating around like a hologram, and it was uh, free floating. And uh, the guy ended up uh, waking up his wife, who ended up seeing this. So this discounts the theory that the individual mind is, is isolated with its individual perception of reality and everything, and that uh, in this case right here, there was actually a secondary observer that was unrelated to all of this. She had absolutely no awareness of what was going on, yet she experienced the same thing at the same time the scientist did, which basically suggests that the, that not only was green... Um, Green's own mind, or this guy's, uh, this the scientist's own mind, um, doing something similar to what Yuri Geller was, but it was taking it a step further. It wasn't just manipulating matter, but it was in a literal sense creating an illusion, uh, creating an imaginary um, apparition, and uh, it was doing it in an uncontrolled way. He, you know, I mean, at this point, he retained his sanity and everything, and he reported it, 
you know, but the interesting thing was uh, he had this, this thing that he saw that uh, not only did he see it, but his wife saw it too. His own mind, in a literal sense, created this thing. In much the same way that Yuri Geller manipulated matter, his own mind didn't just manipulate matter, but it also conjured, it, it created, it, it manifested something. I find this stuff absolutely fascinating myself, and it's just, you know, it's just, it goes back to, you know, old-time discussions about, um, I remember reading about uh, an Indian um, guru way back in early 1920s or something like that, maybe even before, that uh, when he walked, he would actually sprinkle rose petals on the, on the ground from his hand that he had manifested. Um, he didn't carry anything, you know. Was, he would walk around, he would manifest these rose petals no matter where he walked. You know, and he just did it part of, you know, in part for the effect and everything. Well, and the, I mean, stuff like this has actually been discussed and written about throughout history. You know, the ability to be able to transmute is written in the Bible. You know, transmute matter. You know, was it water into wine? Um, the ability to be able to uh, turn a staff into a snake. The ability to spontaneously combust a, uh, a burning bush. All of that's written in the Bible. And uh, it's not just confined to one religious text. And not only that, but science itself has had a, um, a tendency to isolate these incidences and everything. In a lot of cases, the government makes them secret and top secret and everything, you know, as and slowly but surely um, demonstrates these things to the American public and everything, you know, particularly when the American public's ready. But it, uh, but I think that uh, one of the things that uh, that they've realized is that not everybody can handle these these events. Not everybody can, can mentally, you know... Um, accept these things without actually, you know, really going crazy to some degree. You know, not everybody could actually deal with a floating arm that's, you know, suspended in, in space and time and everything right above you, you know, when you wake up and uh, not, not feel like they're going crazy, not question their own sanity. So, in any case, um, scientists uh, ended up reporting it, and as a result... Um, the CIA at that point was working on holograms, and they were working on it with, with Lawrence Livermore, you know, so I find the, um, synchronicity between the, the observation of this, um, of this thing, um, you know, manifested above the scientist, um, the synchronicity between that and the, and the physical technology development, um, occurring at the same time, more than just a coincidence, so I think it's just indicative of the uh, the nature of reality, you know, where technology at the same time it's uh, being invented also has a uh, propensity to be um, available, you know, to some whose minds are simply prepared for it, you know, to and and not have to depend on technology in order to achieve that. So, and let's take, for instance, the video games I play. You know, um, my manipulation, you know, through Yuri Geller and everything is, is you know, established fact, you know, as far as I'm concerned. He's been doing it, and, uh, you know, there's been several that have done it throughout their lives and everything. Well, you know, it's just like, um, I believe that the characters that, uh, that I'm interacting with are real, absolutely real. Now, they're responding, you know, to my manipulations and everything simply because of the fact that I can actually get them through the tough events that they're experiencing and everything, um, that, 
you know, as part of their story, you know, without actually them dying or anything like that, where if they didn't depend on me, you know, to be able to achieve this, well, I mean, I've seen the results, you know, for the most part, those results are pretty obvious, you know, so, so the necessity to actually depend on something that's, that has more awareness or a capability to be able to see things from a perspective that, um, you know, can actually keep you safe isn't, uh, isn't necessarily wrong. That's the way I look at it. You know, so this guy that I'm actually manipulating, you know, as an avatar and everything, you know, does he have free will? Well, of course he does, you know. Um, but his free will is manifested in, in the relationship that's actually created with somebody like me, you know, who at that point agrees to that relationship and says, okay, I'll help you out. And at that point, I help him on his merry way and everything. And, uh, I get to see and, and experience the story from a perspective that myself and my reality right now just simply isn't available to me. And eventually I'll get there and maybe that relationship will be inverted. You know, I'll have somebody else that's guiding me, you know, um, in ways that I don't understand that somebody may regard me as a video game that they're playing. You know, it's, it's quite possible. You know, but uh, all this is predicated on, you know, the cornerstone of some of this uh, research work that was done in the 1960s and 1970s concerning, you know, in particular around uh, some of the stuff that uh, had been observed through Yuri Geller and his ability to be able to control mind and matter and uh, do it in ways that, uh, that was actually scientifically um, verifiable. That's the interesting thing about it all. So, anyways, more later. me again so another story there's a um, I'm investigating consciousness uh, and more or less the mind and everything and the more that I'm looking into this the more that I'm actually starting to you know see a synchronicity you know between the real world and some of the material that's being fed to me so I'm also ultra full. I made a uh, chicken fried steak for dinner tonight. Very full from it. I think I must have gained five pounds from it. Maybe not that much, but man, very full. But uh, CIA actually was uh, experimenting with um, and dealing with uh, contractually a couple of psychics in the uh, 1970s. Um, particularly in about 1975, and uh, one of them was tapped by the CIA. Uh, one group in particular was working with Stanford Research Institute again, and um, they were asked to, they had been given a uh, um, something called a TU-22 Blinder um, Soviet bomber that had actually got, gotten um, lost. Now, the psychic wasn't told where, um, wasn't told um, what it it involved and how it had gotten lost or anything like that. So basically, the psychic had an entire world to select from and everything. And the whole the whole goal of this wasn't necessarily to prove psychic behavior, but basically um, dig into the ability for the mind to be able to remotely pinpoint information. Now, you know, one of the scientists that I absolutely admire that worked on this, that uh, that actually witnessed all this stuff going on and everything, um, had different 
different uh, explanation for events, and he was saying less that it was about paranormal and more about simply unexplained science from a natural perspective. There was something going on with the way the mind functions. And uh, he referenced a book called uh, Carl, by Carl Jung, uh, J-U-N-G, that uh, discussed uh, the collective consciousness. Now, there's a movie, um, The X-Men, and Dr. Xavier actually has something uh, that enhances his mental capabilities to be able to sift through the collective minds um, of existence and to basically pinpoint and look at locations around the globe and that kind of stuff and and find and uh, isolate and find just one single mind and everything. Well, one of the things that's actually been proven through um, scientific tests, uh, particularly starting in the 1960s all the way to the present day, is that the, uh, the presence of something called a Faraday cage um, it quite literally limits the capability for extraneous emissions from um, basically anything that's uh, more or less um, has a capability to electro from the electromagnetic spectrum and everything which could influence the mind it in a literal sense it protects the mind from those emissions but it also allows the mind the capability to be able to see the world in a little bit more uh, stronger a form so Faraday cage if you're not familiar with it it's basically it's a cage that uh, is completely um, encased in a coppers or copper wiring that uh, in a literal sense creates a small magnetic field um, but it also prevents the free flow of uh, electromagnetism as freely um, into and and out of that that Faraday uh, that cage so it's used in a lot of cases to actually protect um, electronic equipment um, but in also in, in cases of particular experimentation with something called um, psychic and energies or PK uh, or anything like that. Um, it has a capability to be able to uh, enhance the capabilities of the mind, um, you know, to be able to, to do these kind of experiments, remote viewing and that kind of stuff, by diminishing the background noise, the other noise that can actually cause confusion with the mind and everything. So it's just basically a way for the mind to isolate itself and to, and to be able to filter out the, the noise of, you know, mechanical devices and whatnot and be able to focus more on the noise of um, objects and um, objects, items, sounds, and also people. So I find it interesting that the same concept is depicted in, in uh, the X-Men. And, um, you know, that... Uh, it it you know that um, what is it uh, Professor Xavier, uh, a well-known psychic, actually builds uh, one of these devices, and this is actually where he goes to be able to look at the world. He can actually, you know, look at it from a a stronger, more convicted perspective and everything. Like I said, it's just like if you study alternate realities, you know, as depicted in movies, TV shows, and video games and that kind of stuff, for the science that they produce. And, and the concepts that they produce. It's my belief that the authors and providers of this material are doing nothing but channeling the very real natural world that exists out there and the possibilities that could exist with it if you just uh, opened up your mind and your eyes to the possibilities. So in any case, um, going back to this whole TU-22 blunder, blinder thing, uh, the Soviet uh, bomber, um, two psychics, uh, two people that, uh, I'm not going to refer to them as psychics, uh, two people uh, skilled with 
remote viewing, were asked to come up with drawings for basically um, a top topography, uh, topographical maps on where the where this thing had gone down, and uh, they ended up um, independently uh, produced two different uh, two different overviews, topographical overviews that uh, depicted roughly the same location for which the uh, the aircraft had gotten down, and um, the apparently the CIA had run out of options and they were trying to find this aircraft and they ended up coming back and actually told the full story to the people that were involved with it um, with these uh, experiments for the remote viewing trying to f trying to locate the aircraft and they explained that uh, somebody from Zaire um, had actually defected they actually had a military aircraft and uh, in his in the process of defecting he decided to actually um, d d parachute out of the uh, aircraft letting it fly on autopilot until it ran out of fuel but in the meantime um, he wasn't interested in providing the technology you know from you know from Russia what there's basically a Soviet uh, bomber you know to the United States he was just basically interested in defecting and uh, well the CIA you know they were interested in acquiring the technology so they ended up trying to find the aircraft well it had flown for quite a while you know um, coming from Zaire so, and it was somewhere in Africa and it had gone on autopilot for quite a while before it had downed, it had, uh, you know, basically downed, and, you know, the the problem that they had was, because it, it had run out of fuel, flying on autopilot, it wasn't, uh, it didn't destroy anything, you know, um, it, and that's what made it kind of difficult for it to find, they knew it crashed somewhere in the jungle, but uh, they couldn't, um, they couldn't figure out where, simply because there was no real explosions, no, you know, no debris, no, no, nothing that's resemblant of your typical aircraft, uh, aircraft downing. So that's why they ended up turning to alternative options and everything, and they leveraged these remote viewers. Well, the um, the one remote viewer was more accessible than the other one, so they ended up showing her the map of the topographical uh, area um, that they had actually it was a 200 by 200 uh, area that they had narrowed it down to down for, and they she did something called dowsing, um, which is something that uh, back in the old days, you know, 1800s and before, um, there was a lot of something called water water dowsers. They would go around with these sticks or with different uh, instruments and everything. That had been fabricated um, and uh, allowed them to actually you know, very quickly and easily find water that was existing underground to basically, you know, for water supplies and that kind of stuff. And this was actually a very real thing. And uh, this this still goes on to this present day for a lot of people that don't have, you know, the technology to be able to look for these things. You know, human mind innately has the capability to do anything technology can do. You know, that's the moral of that story. So a water dowser is just as capable, you know, of doing the same thing that uh, an instrument, a piece of instrument can do. Um, it's just different perspectives, you know, to some some degree it's a disassociation. So in any case, this, um, this, this uh, person that was doing the remote viewing looked at the map. She did, uh, she did something re that uh, she referred to as map dowsing. And at this point, um, she ended up triangulating a spot on the map that she had been given, the topographical map, and said, right here. Well, apparently within two and a half days, the CIA ended up contacting her through a separate source and uh, indicated that uh, they had somebody that was in a town and 
that was you know literally right next to where this uh where the map had actually been marked and everything and somebody had come into town with a uh an aircraft part and that person then led them you know to that to that location so while her um her capability you know to be able to triangulate a position and everything wasn't 100% exact um it's important i think to to actually refer back to something like the carl jung type thing you know and understand that uh with you know, so many different minds that are actually what I consider responsible from an individual perspective for creating reality. One mind's capability to be able to triangulate a position, um, you know, let alone, you know, it, it actually increases the odds and the potential that this is actually going to occur, um, increases the probability um, of finding that location by adding more people to the mix and everything. You know, so it's it's basically it's nothing more than a predictive uh, predictive mechanism actually determining things. You know, with people that are skilled at this uh, at this skill. You know, if you discount the skill and you don't believe it, well, you're flat out missing on a resource that you have. You know, that you have at your disposal in order to be able to you know to achieve certain things. In this case, right here, they recovered the aircraft, and while her her target on the map may not have led directly to the location. We live in an analog reality, and what she did was she provided the evidence necessary for them to be able to locate the aircraft in an indirect way. So, you know, basically it's, you know, the difference between analog versus digital technology is digital technology is based on Boolean systems. You know, it's true-false. It, generally speaking, has the capability to be able to pinpoint a position on a map, and it's either there or it's not. You know, um, there's no, um, the fuzzy conditions, you know, of more possibilities and everything based on too much information um, tends not to exist within a binary environment and everything. But um, that's actually, you know, doesn't, the fact that a remote viewer can't perform like that doesn't invalidate the, the experience that was received. You know, ultimately, what they were interested in was trying to find the aircraft. And ultimately, what she did was she provided a marker on the map that eventually helped them come to come to discover this location. She provided evidence that tipped the scale in the direction that actually lo ended up locating this place. So that in itself is the beauty about uh, remote viewing and the capabilities. While it may not necessarily draw the uh, a, a precise picture, you know, of the terrain. Um, there's a wonderful saying that I uh, I ended up reading over and over again um, within the. Um, Oh, it was uh, when I was studying neural linguistic programming, and uh, the map is not the terrain. You know, I love that saying. You know, it, it makes a lot of sense too. It's like you know, if you look at a, a map of terrain from overhead and everything, the map itself is only one perspective model of that terrain. So the model is not the terrain. The map is not the terrain. You know, so, and what that's saying is, you know, what happens on the ground and everything, while that map may have an accurate or somewhat accurate perception of of the terrain, 
you know, um, it's important to understand that the maps that are produced for a given terrain can vary person to person and everything, individual to individual, you know, and uh, could be dramatically different based on the perspective of those that are creating it and everything. You know, so you can have 50 maps that, uh, while all, they all may appear very, very similar, um, you know, in a general sense, you know, if uh, if you have independent people that are actually doing the measurements, you know, to create these maps, my bet is they're not going to come up with the same maps. But in a general sense, I think what does happen for most maps is one um, leverages, builds off of the other, you know, which you have this incestuous stream of, you know, basically this is the origin. The origin comes from a different map that looked just like it with slight refinements and everything. And, um, that in itself is actually, you know, responsible for creating the maps and everything. So where there's really only one origin point for a map, but that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody else has gone in and actually mapped or remapped the terrain. So, and I do think it's probably more of a rarity. And the reason I mention this is the map is not the terrain is that, um, that clock, that the, uh, they have this capability, the remote viewer, gave the information so they can actually find it on the terrain. So and this is where what I think is just really important. They pointed the direction and ultimately they ended up because of that, they ended up getting what they were looking for. So it may sound imprecise and to, to a certain degree it, it it is but it requires the you know the collusion you know of different minds working together in order to create the expected outcome you know in this case it did you know i mean that's that's the interesting thing about it so in any case um i thought it was an interesting uh interesting study but anyways getting back to the whole collective uh, collective mind thing um in the collective unconscious, um, Jung presented the uh, the belief that uh, that reality itself is comprised of um, basically a, a collective unconscious layer that uh, doesn't just um, guide actions, but it also dictates actions in a lot of cases. So to some degree, it overrides the individual and the individual's behaviors and the in individual's thought processes. You know, and... Uh, and it's possible for one individual to override another individual's thought processes. You know, um, I could be playing this game called Watch Dogs, and you could have 50, 100, 1,000 other people that are playing this thing as well. And uh, what's the best, best path for, you know, for the guy that's actually the main character and everything to get through this one mission? Well, I mean, maybe information is taken from a thousand different uh, firing neurons that uh, are basically like me, playing, thinking we're playing a game, you know, sitting behind a computer system, when, you know, to him, we're, all we are is nothing more than neurons that are basically steering the decisions that he's making that ultimately wind up with him achieving what it is that he's trying to achieve. You know, he's none the wiser, you know, that he had stimulus from all these different possibilities. You know, people that are actually playing his life as a game, you know, he's probably not even aware that he's, that he's actually the product of a game. 
you know, and if somebody just happened to mention, boy, you look a lot like that guy on that game, chances are his mind is actually filtering out this information. You know, and that's actually what I consider as a collective mind at work. Collective mind at work has a tendency to um, to remove, um, to censor, in a lot of cases, the discovery that you are actually the product of somebody else's fiction. You know, that, uh, that you are, you know, a a character, you know, in somebody else's novel, that you are a TV star, you know, on a, on a show that they, that they watch and they love. And, um, you know, this slippery slope, uh, I had a time that I ended up going through um, Universal Studios way back in, it was, I think it was like 19, or 2006, 2005, 2006 with Amy. And uh, I was on a cart. Um, it, we were doing the VIP experience, me and my uh, ex-wife. And uh, we were going through the lot, and all of a sudden, I, we ended up going by this one um, one line. You know, we were behind the bars and behind the gates, and all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people started screaming, you know, off to the, uh, in line and everything. And I'm just like, what the hell did they, I mean, I'm here in glasses and just basically kicked back and relaxed and all this kind of stuff and everything, and got my ex-wife that uh, is sitting on the uh, cart behind us, and we're all, we're just basically, I've got a friend of the family, he's uh, carting us across the, uh, the, Universal Studios, this is where it's at, you know, so we're at Universal Studios, we're on the lot, and we're going to, for the VIP experience, and everybody starts screaming, you know, I mean, seriously, it was like, holy shit, why is it everybody's, you know, what's this uproar for? I, I kind of cracked up, because here I am, thinking, they mis misidentified me as being somebody that was on a movie or TV show, and as a result, all of them, but I just, you know, I, I was baffled, all of them, I mean, there's literally a hundred people that were yelling and screaming and all this other stuff back over there, you know, and, and my mind came to conclude, you know, I came to conclude from a conscious perspective and everything, that, uh, that these people were, you know, just basically, um, they'd seen me and mistook me for somebody else, and, you know, I had no freaking clue who they could mistake me for. I didn't know any movie stars could potentially look like me, but, you know, here they are. You know, they're they're screaming and they're hooting and hollering and all that kind of stuff and everything. It's just like, okay, this is bizarre. Well, I mean, it, it comes down to it. There's really, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, from the perspe their perspective, there's an alternative perspective. You know, my mind censors out this attention because I'm not fond of attention in a general sense. You know, like I just got done telling my parents I have a hard time being, you know, being seen naked. I actually had a, uh, I saw Clark Community College is offering, you know, artistic uh, drawings and that kind of stuff. And I, I've thought about going down there just to overcome this latent insecurity I have with my own body. You know, but uh, to imagine that, uh, you know, there's there's a hundred people, you know, potentially even more that are seeing me do things that I myself is just like, hmm. You know, so from their perspective, maybe I am on their favorite TV show. Maybe I am on their favorite movie or, you know, um, I don't know. You know, maybe I, I will have been a longtime actor or something like that. You know, so from their perspective, they're seeing me on TV shows, movies and all this stuff. You know, um, maybe hearing me on a radio show or something like that. You know, but from my perspective, because maybe I just mentally wasn't ready for it. You know, um, or maybe something else. Um, maybe the 
uh, the collective conscious, so subconscious, basically said, you know, you can't have all that profit going to one individual or something like that. At that point, you know, for some reason or another, it invalidated, you know, me receiving that attention, disassociated me from that attention, and uh, and made it so where I saw it as just basically, hey, you got some crazy individuals over here that they see something that uh, apparently I don't, or they think I'm somebody that I'm not. Well, I am. You know, I am that person. You know, that's that's actually what I came to realize, you know, a couple of years ago. And it comes down to just understanding how the collective um, the collective mind, you know, the mind of, of individuals that actually are like-minded in certain areas, whether or not that's a collective mind in the United States, a collective mind of the world of Earth, um, the collective mind of the entirety of the Milky Way galaxy, and so on and so forth, or maybe it's a collective mind of an all-of-matter Thunderbird, you know, that you create with networks and everything. That in itself, each one of these things creates different um, different paths, and uh, each one of those paths, as a collective, um, sometimes they fight with each other and everything, but sometimes it's possible to peer into that collective or at any level, and that's where this information is obtained from for the remote viewing. It's no mystery. It's no magic. You know, it's just basically understanding the mind. You know, the mind isn't isolated to a single individual, you know. The mind is actually a multi-dimensional thing, you know. It's just like my mind, you know, from my perspective, I see reality in a certain way. I, I interact with it. I have certain senses. I have certain technologies that I work with to interact with it and everything, you know. Um, and technologies and, and my perceptions and everything um, may be starkly different compared to others. And I've gotten glimpses through others other perceptual lenses and everything. You know, I get it all the time in a slightly disassociated way when I watch TV and movies and that kind of stuff. But I know that there's far more profound different ways of looking and perceiving the world and everything that uh, that are just barely out there, you know, that appear horrific to me. You know, but to somebody else, you know, I can imagine that this is their reality. And they're perfectly fine with that reality. You know, so the individual mind develops um, develops intelligence and perspective based on that perspective, and uh, it's not neither right nor wrong. You know, it just is what it is. You know, um, but from a a collective perspective, you know, the collective um, isn't necessarily one and the same as the individual. It can be, you know, but uh, it depends. I mean, it's just funky. You know, so it's my belief that uh, when the remote viewing occurred, um, these individuals are leveraging their mind and their mental capabilities in order to basically sift through the collective uh, collective mind um, as if it was a database. You know, as if it, uh, they're literally cataloging information and they've got the unique capability to be able to catalog and discover the labels that actually exist within the collective mind and uh, be able to uh, to locate those things and actually transform that into a three-dimensional position on space in space based on latitude longitude and, and height you know they're they're not necessarily fully precise with it because reality is an interpretation my vision and the way I perceive Earth isn't necessarily the same as yours, isn't necessarily the same as everybody else's. Now it could be very similar, you know, remarkably similar, but they aren't necessarily the same, nor are they ever guaranteed to be the same. 
you know, it's like this. When I walk off the stage of your life, you know, does what happened to you, is it uh, synchronized with, with what, I'm, what I'm told by you? Not always, right? You know, so I may create a different model of, of your life and what happens with you, you know, when you walk off the stage of my life. And that model may deviate very, very strongly from the words that you feed me so strongly at times that you may at one time come clean about something that I never imagined that was that you were possible and I may have actually you know had this as a cornerstone in my life you know where basically the information that you feed me I may not want to hear and as a result that creates a juncture a literal rift in time in space and time and everything that causes a different path and everything different development of uh, quite you know probably a different version of Earth and everything. You know, so going back to the whole remote viewing thing, though, you know, they're working with imprecise models because they're sifting through what I consider um, logical information. Now, to put this in terms of databases, um, in, da in database terms, uh, if you actually want to analogize this co to computers, uh, computers have something called SQL Server Database. <laughs> And um, there's different forms of databases. One's MySQL, another one's Postgres, another one's Oracle. There's varying different forms of this. And in general, um, Wells Fargo uh, or the NSA or the CIA or any number of different companies and everything, they store information in this thing called the database. And uh, it could be like a credit card company, for instance. So let's say when you use your credit card, um, that credit card creates a transaction. That transaction occurs at a specific point in space or at, in time. And also a position in space, too. So generally speaking, when you use your credit card nowadays, um, a GPS location is actually associated with that, or at the very least, an address of the location of which that credit card was used. In addition to that, you've also got a date timestamp that's associated with it, um, the um, amount that was actually on the currency. Um, sometimes you get a fully itemized list of, uh, of what actually occurred on that transaction. You know, so you might see that uh, you went to a mobile station, you ended up getting, you know, gas to the tune of $24.83. And on, in addition to that, you also got a, a raspberry iced tea and maybe a donut, you know. So all these things are going to be listed on that transaction and everything. Well, all that information is actually stored um, at that point of sale and then forwarded to um, to a the clearinghouse system, basically Visa, and it goes back to the respective bank. It's sent from there to the respective bank that's actually responsible for, you know, billing you on a regular basis and receiving your payments and actually maintaining your balance and everything. All that information is actually stored in something called a database. And that database itself, whether or not it's MySQL, um, it's SQL Server, or all this, has your name, you know, within one table, and your name, your address, your phone number, all the relevant information concerning you. And in addition to that, it also has a link to the statements. You know, this is actually contained in a different table, and it also has a, a link to all the transactions that occurred and the time period that these occur on. So all that information, everything is stored in this database. Well, reality, um, from various different perspectives, also has records of of these events from a natural perspective and everything. And uh, in in ancient Indian times, or something referred to as the Akashic records, um, these Akashic records go back to basically before this universe and everything, which is a record record system that actually depicts where things happen, when they happen, who they happen 
happened to, you know, your acting sources and everything, and more or less it's a complete record of more or less what went into not just building this universe, but basically every universe that's out there. Um, so that's one method of record keeping and everything. It's my suspicion that every planet has it too. Earth, for instance, does as well. Now, you have various different intelligence sources, you know, such as the NSA, the CIA, um, foreign governments and everything, such as China, um, Russia, uh, the UK, France, um, Germany, each one of these, into India just got theirs too. Um, each of them actually maintain a world history from their perspective and everything. Now, it's important to understand that world history from the perspective of a particular country isn't necessarily one and the same as world history from alternative perspectives. You know, for instance, the Tiananmen Square event that actually occurred um, from the United States perspective, according to a Chinese perspective, never happened. You know, so all these records and everything are actually maintained in varying different forms and formats and everything. And we here in the United States tend to have a decentralized method of actually recording these events and everything. Well, we also um, have, have other mechanisms out there that I've discovered myself and um, basically of life and death. Um, precise points in space and time where, where basically somebody dies. Um, and also, you know, a, a forwarding, a store and forwarding information for their consciousness and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and this, this is based on any number of different things. And uh, the whole movie, uh, The Source Code, I think is what the movie was, is, is based on the concept of basically rewinding time to a certain point. And it's a discovery of this mechanism that can actually reset time and actually make it so where certain events, you know, catastrophic events, flat out don't happen. So with this, um, the capability to be able to tap into not just the um, human-based records, but also alternative records, you know, such as um, more natural-based records and everything, um, are always out there. You know, so they exist in any number of different forms. You know, so when somebody's actually remote viewing, they're looking not just at natural, at, uh, at, uh, at artificial records. They're, at, you know, like a database in, in SQL Server, but there's natural databases that exist out there as well. And a little hint of this is actually existing within, the, uh, within trees. You know, so if you look at a tree, a tree contains um, a complete record of its history and the environment around it. Now, and, and that's for its entire lifespan. And interestingly enough, you know, you look at the Yosemite, there's 5,000 years worth of history have actually been stored in the trees and the records of the growing up of the bark and the, and the, and basically the tree itself. You know, and you see these in the concentric rings that are created within most trees and everything. You know, each ring signifies a certain amount of age based on its relative to the respective tree and everything. You know, so that's why deforestation could be so detrimental to a population and everything, because in a literal sense, that population could quite literally lose track of its, uh, of its natural records. Well, we here in the United States, we've come up with a different way to actually preserve our, our natural records, and that's through something called intellectual property. And um, it's it's not necessarily, you know, we, we've done it in a way that doesn't require the participation of the land that we actually live on and everything. And uh, with those records, you have complete access to basically anything that you want to, and it's all through mixed, you know, through media. 
You know, so there's a mix. It's a mix between artificial and the natural world and everything that we've managed to achieve here in the United States that very few countries have the capability to be able to understand, let alone, you know, <laughs> participate in everything, you know, without understanding why we're doing what we're doing and what we're doing altogether. So the remote viewing has the capability to be able to, um, in a sense, um, disassociate uh, the visuals, the sounds, the the magnetic um information and basically segment information and actually look at the information from a pool like perspective now going back to the whole database concept you've got two different uh, forms of database you've got the logical and you've got the physical now logical sim nothing more than than an ordering system it's it's the method in which things are actually ordered you know whether or not you're talking about chronological order you're talking about tables and relationships um, there's any number of different methods for ordering information um, and you can keep on you know there's a slippery slope of in of so many different possibilities of, of possible ordering systems that can actually order information so with that said, you know, and that's all based on any number of different factors too. It could be based on the company, the individual, um, priorities of the uh, priorities that are of, of collective organisms, um, the country's perspective. You name it. There's no end to the possibilities, and I've I've seen quite a few in the years that I've actually worked in IT and everything, and uh, at least at least um, probably on an order of fifty different types. Of, uh, of mechanisms. Now there is, it is finite, you know, that I've seen. Um, there is some duplication repetitiveness, you know, between ordering systems, but in a general sense it, it tends to actually be, um, you know, pretty robust, you know, for the way that information can actually be stored logically. But there's a there's a difference between taking something in a logical format and actually trans transforming that to the material to the physical, and um, that's a, that's actually what this remote viewer can do. She can look at things from a logical perspective, and then she can leverage that in, in a literal sense. All she's doing is transforming that information that she's looking in the collective mind, and she's transforming that to the physical. And it's quite a feat, you know, if you ask me. Now, I had watched uh, a funny little cartoon a couple of years ago. It's uh, based on the Borg and the inception of the Borg. And the Borg were, um, had actually come back to uh, the point in uh, the Milky Way galaxy trying to find their origin point. Now, they believe that their origin point is based on the Pioneer or the Voyager. Um, both of which a pioneer or is it the Voyager? Both of which are satellites that were actually sent out from, you know, the United States in the 1970s, and they came back looking for the precise coordinates, and those coordinates weren't there. And at that point, they actually learned to, um, they evolved in a certain sense to be able to look inside their own collective mind and find single, find and isolate single conscious minds within that collective framework and everything. Now, that's not that much different than what this remote viewer is doing. You know, the difference, and, and the difference is the ability to be able to understand that reality itself isn't necessarily a binary transformation. 
So the way I look at it is there's a holographic universe that's out there. I have access to that holographic universe, which is infinite different possibilities and everything, through my computer systems, through my TV, um, even through the radio to a certain degree, but not as much. You know, the radio is still transmitted over analog signals, but those analog signals could be digitally based in origin. Um, but in a general sense, anything that I get through computer-based systems and te television-based systems um, is basically digital. And say, what it is, I consider it's a it's a f a a window, if you will, and in looking into. It's a window into looking into alternate uh, possibilities, and these alternate possibilities exist um, in a in a collective fashion within the holographic universe that I'm actually looking through and I'm when I'm looking at the, looking at and interacting with the computer system you know so my analog though is comprised of interactions that basically I have in a real real tangible way and everything on a real-time basis you know of the infinite possibilities that actually come together to form one possibility so the difference is I can actually interact uh, with the digital worlds from granular binary perspective and everything through computer systems and television systems and everything, but that translation doesn't necessarily, isn't a one-for-one -one relationship to the analog world. And when you come to the analog world, it's almost like taking a picture of the perfect Big Mac and then all of a sudden you go down there and you actually see the creation itself you know, as produced by a line cook that's been through hell and back and everything because you went there during lunch hour to order a Big Mac and the Big Mac comes look, comes away looking soggy and nothing like the picture. And the picture's in pristine condition, you know, it's it's taken under, you know, perfect, uh, perfect lighting conditions and, you know, to optimize the marketability of this product and everything, you know, but that transformation, that digital transfer, you know, that digital image and everything, once you actually take that image and then transform that into the actual physical product itself, there's something that's not necessarily lost in translation, there's added to the translation, and these additives are, you know, know um, the the analog world at work and everything that causes a less than um, a you can't say an inferior quality an influenced in quality final production and everything and that influenced in quality while they certainly could make it pristine like that every time it would still have to take in consideration all the effort that was put in to that original product and everything to be able to create that picture to begin with. Picture isn't um, it, it's it's kind of like the this you know going back to that saying that I said the picture or the map is not the territory. The picture is not the product. It's kind of the same thing. You know the picture depicts the product in perfect conditions, but the picture is not the product on final delivery. So, in any case, um, that's all these uh, all these people are doing. You know what they're doing isn't you know isn't rocket science. You know it's um, it's not even pseudoscience anymore. You know there's in the individual mind. There's a collective mind. There's you know the collectives within collectives. You know you see them form. You see them influence. You you feel the peer pressure. You know, exerting, and you can't, you know, it's almost impossible to tell where some of that peer pressure comes from sometimes. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means it's fucking difficult to figure it out. 
You know, and it's it's hard not to react to too. Until you start learning about it a little bit better. You know, I think a lot of it comes down to you get a little bit older, you start realizing, hey, you know, it's real. You know, the collective pressure, it exists. I can't, you know, I can't not have it because I'm a part of a collective. So, you know, and that's actually why, you know, remote viewing isn't pseudoscience. It's actually real. They're doing something, you know, understanding something in the collective mind that maybe most people, particularly from a binary scientific individualistic mindset, can't fully comprehend. Well, it's just because they don't understand that they're part of a collective, and that collective will influence and will continue influencing them in ways they don't fully understand. You know, I don't think there's ever really any way to understand the full implications of the collective mind and the possibilities that can actually do for the influence until you become one and the same with it. And at that point, you know, the synchronicity becomes a little bit obvious. You know, but until that point comes, it's frustrating as fuck. You know, particularly when you see something like this that just doesn't make logical sense, rational sense. You know, it doesn't have a basis in physical reality. It's a logical concept, it's an abstract concept, an idea. You know, until that's actually committed, it becomes a little bit difficult to follow. Anyways, I um, I, I like this section, you know, discussing this, uh, the concepts of the mind and, you know, how the, ma the mind influences reality. You know, and not only that, but how it creates, how this feedback loop and everything. You know, so, so really it begs the question, you know, did the did the plane crash landing create an event in in, in the Akashic records? My my belief is um, there's a recording of everything that happens, everything, you know, from a granule of dust that might uh, cause an avalanche to occur to a plane in its trajectory over time and everything. You know, all of it has to be calculated. You know. And there's a, there's a a directory of all these events that happen, you know, and um, I mean, for instance, I can actually one of these days be able to look at that directory and say, hey, you know, that event that happened with Jackie with her dancing and everything for me, and well, I'll be able to locate that precise event, you know, by looking it up in these records. You know, is it going to be a Google-like thing I use? Maybe, you know, probably a little bit more advanced and everything. You know, but I'll be able to look at look up that event, and I might be able to actually have it in a three-dimensional hologram that I enter. You know, that I say, hey, you know, I'm going to participate in this reality, and I'm going to have some fun with it. I'm going to have events like that that I'm going to return to and everything. But I'm going to actually retain the retain the memories, so I I don't repeat things again. You know, so I actually make sure, you know, that I stay fresh, that I enjoy myself. And not, not only that, but I'm also in a constant process of creation. Or at least it feels that way. So, in any case, um, the logical records are stored out there, you know, quote-unquote, in the, in the mind, you know. Um, and it's also internal, too. You know, the mind has a capability to be able to sift through those records, you know, much the same way you actually think back to your own memories and everything. From a collective sense, you have you have the same innate capabilities to be able to sift through those, you know, um, with proper concentration, understanding, and everything. You know, and these people they just have a a command of a different skill set. You know, it's like me with computer programming. Sure, I can program now. I just don't feel like it. 
and I was a great programmer, you know, before, but now I'm just at the point where I just don't feel like doing that bit twiddling, you know, the whole binary type stuff. Now give me some scripts that I can run, and I can actually do some of the hacking that's actually depicted in Watch Dogs 2. I'm there. You know, and, and these skills, you know, to somebody as an external observer, may appear impossible. May appear, you know, uh, in, uh, you know, something that's, you know, not even remotely accessible to them. Now, I think everyone knows that they're innately capable of anything. But not everybody chooses to prove it. And not everybody chooses to actually acquire every skill that's possible, and they actually do choose to retain their individuality. You know, and just basically gain skills from a single individual perspective and everything, and just basically remain that individual. So, in any case, yeah, the Akashic Records, um, that's one one form of the logical uh, logical storage system and everything for information. But, uh, Gregorian calendar, that's just a different ordering system, if you will, you know, for events that actually happen terrestrially here on planet Earth and everything. And uh, I have my own um, logical ordering system, which is a little bit esoteric and everything, but it's individualistically based in its approximations. Approximately 2006, I had a wonderful dance. In uh, 1999, I was first approached by the NSA. 2001, I ended up uh, saying yes to him. 2001, late 2001, I, you know, 9-11 happened. You know, 2008, I started attending MBA program at Thunderbird. 2007, I was accepted, and I graduated, uh, you know, from University of Phoenix, and I graduated high school in 1987. You know, all these events and everything basically create the chronology that is my life, and that's actually an ordering system, you know, for the events that have actually occurred within my life that actually give my life, um, you know, it's a logical ordering system, but, you know, it is translatable to a physical time and space. You know, now the dependence to be able to make modifications to, um, and also create, uh, you know, different, different possibilities and relive different possibilities, um, is more or less does require, you know, the participation of the external world around me to be able to provide more tangible ways of being able to relate those logical, um, ideas and concepts, uh, constructs that I've presented and everything in time periods, you know, to something I can actually access through preferably technology. That's why I like technology. It allows me the ability to be able to still be me. I don't care if I'm independent or dependent on the technology in order to be able to achieve some of these things. You know? I mean, I understand what goes into it. And I guess I'm okay with that. 